Hey everyone, this episode of Books and Boba is brought to you by Libro.fm. As you know, we at Books and Boba are strong proponents of supporting your local independent bookstores, but unfortunately, due to obvious reasons, it's been hard to get out lately. That's where Libro.fm comes in. Libro.fm is the first audiobook company to make it possible for customers to purchase audiobooks through their local booksellers of choice. They offer over 150,000 audiobooks, including New York Times bestsellers and hundreds of bookseller recommendations. And each purchase goes to support one of their 1,100 plus independent bookstore partners. Audiobooks are a perfect way to work through the TBR list of yours while doing chores, walking the dog, or just staying safe at home. All you need is a smartphone with the Libro FM app. Listeners of Books and Boba can get a two-month audiobook membership for the price of one by going to Libro.fm, that's L-I-B-R-O dot F-M, and enter the code BOOKSANDBOBA. With each listen, you can take pride in knowing that you're supporting your local bookstore as well as Books and Boba. Again, to access your two-for-one promo deal, um, go to Libro.fm and enter the code BOOKSANDBOBA. And now to our show. You're listening to... Hey everyone, welcome to Books and Boba, a book club and podcast featuring books by Asian and Asian American authors. My name is Marvin Yue. And I'm Rira Yu. And we are here today to bring you another great author interview, this time with Suzanne Park, the author of Loathe at First Sight and The Perfect Escape, both of which came out earlier this year. Yeah, Suzanne's uh, books have been on our radar for uh, some time now. Um, I remember when we announced the book deals, I was really excited. So I'm really glad that uh, we were able to get her on the podcast. Yeah, we talk a lot about her journey as an author, um, as well as her latest book that just came out this month, um, Loathe at First Sight, which is an adult rom-com that takes place in a toxic workplace, um, otherwise known as the video game industry. Um, so needless, needless to say, as gamers ourselves, we had a lot in common with, uh, we had a lot of touch points with this story, um, as well as um, with the character, uh, the main character, Melody. The amount of times that we have talked about games in this podcast, we could probably start another podcast about video games. So <laughs> yeah, this was definitely up our alley. That could be bonus content if we ever launch our on Patreon or Kickstarter. If you want it, we will deliver. <laughs> Uh, Rira and Marvin plays video games. We'll probably play. I mean, technically, since we're a book club for stories by Asian Asian American authors, I would say we can probably start a visual novel book club or something. Huh? Probably could. I play a lot of those. It's probably <laughs> like it's probably like my uh, my genre of games that I play the most. <laughs> well, hey, everything is possible since we're entering our what is our fourth year or fifth year. How many years have we been a book club now? It's going to be our fourth year next month. Wow. Time really flies, um, especially since, um, I guess, at this point, a good chunk of that has been during COVID times. Um, But yeah, uh, we had a really great chat with Suzanne Park. And without further ado, let's get right into it. Here is our interview with author Suzanne Park. So we're here with Suzanne Park, the author of The Perfect Escape and Loathe at First Sight. Thank you, Suzanne, for uh, joining us today. 
Thanks for having me. This is going to be really fun, I hope. Welcome. <laughs> I hope. Okay. It will we're, be We're going to ask you all your deepest, darkest secrets on this podcast. I know, I'm ready. a little nervous. And now, now the pressure's on us to make it fun. <laughs> so uh, tell us a little bit about where you're from. Well, I was born and raised in Tennessee. So in a town right outside of Nashville. So at the time, um, the town didn't have that many non I uh, had mostly just white people at this in this town. And I think slowly and surely over the years, they've increased it to about 3%. <laughs> <laughs> it's a pretty, uh, pretty big uh, waves they're making there. But um, yeah, so I was born and raised in this town, uh, but we I did most of my schooling in uh, Nashville. So um, yeah, 18 years of my life spent in the South. Are you also living in Tennessee right now or have you relocated? Yeah. So after, um, after high school, I moved to New York for school. And then after that, moved to Los Angeles for grad school. So I've moved to those two cities and then found a position in Seattle and lived there for a number of years and then moved back to L.A. about eight years ago. <laughs> so I consider L.A. my home now, but um, definitely have my still have a lot of friends um, in, in Nashville, and I do like to go visit. We kind of had the same trajectory uh, because uh, I'm from Georgia, and, oh. then I went, and then I went to school in New York, and then I moved to L.A., and now I'm here. Yeah. So, <laughs> so I totally understand when, when people ask, like, where are you from? I'm like, I, I don't know. I'm from, like, four different places. <laughs> so, <Yes>. yeah. <laughs> and I've lived in uh, at least all of those places for a number of years. So yeah. in New York, I was there for seven years. For In L.A. collectively, I was there. You know, it's been twice that I've moved here. Um, over 10 if you combine everything and then Seattle also a long time. So, uh, so I consider all of them my home to some degree, but yeah, Nashville, I do consider like my hometown. Wow. Yeah. I had the opposite. I was born in Toronto and then I moved to LA and I've been here ever since. And oh. I moved here when I was one. So I'm barely Canadian. You know, I, I about to always say. wondered about like, <laughs> like, what does that feel like? <laughs> To be um, in one place? I mean, yeah, I, to be in yeah. one place for your entire life. I mean, like, I've lived in other cities. Like? I've lived in DC. I lived in San Diego. Um, but mm-hmm. I think I've spent at least 25 years of my life in LA, specifically in San Gabriel. Okay. Um, Surrounded by Asians all the time. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Totally to say, different. that feels yeah. <laughs> totally different <laughs> than Georgia and Tennessee. <laughs> yeah. Is there anything about Tennessee that you miss? I miss the food. Oh yeah, um, southern food. You can't beat that. <laughs> it's true. And even when in LA you really can't find good southern food. I mean, you find food that is like southern adjacent, but it's not the meat and threes and it's not the, you know, just the just the type of food they have there is just heartier and it tastes homemade, I guess. And yeah. I just really appreciate that kind of food. So when I go back home, we, you know, I love just eating Southern food, like shrimp and grits and uh, whatever. Just <laughs> put it all on my plate. Biscuits, gravy. <laughs> yeah, I feel like in LA, you get a lot of fancy chefs making Southern food. Yes, that's right. I mean, collard <laughs> greens are not too fancy. And yet somehow they add all these ingredients that make it almost too fancy. And I'm like, it's turnip greens. Like, you should, 
it shouldn't have all these. It shouldn't have like 18 ingredients in it. But um, <laughs> but somehow, yeah, that's the L.A. way of doing it. And it's also, um, you know, very organic and, and barely yeah. it's sometimes raw when you eat it here. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so both of your books are set in Seattle. Um, and you said that you're um, now in L.A. Do you plan to write a book set in L.A. anytime soon? One of my books, the one I'm writing for release next year, it's the young adult book coming out in June from 2021. That one is partly in L.A. Uh, and that book is about a um, social media addicted teenager who is shipped off by her parents to go to digital detox camp in Iowa. So <laughs> <laughs> wow. So the beginning part is placed is in L.A. and you have a little bit of L.A. Um, just some some discussions about just the environment there and then when she shipped off you can see the contrast of it so um so partly i guess the la uh based and that that's been a lot of fun to write because it really i've had the opportunity to write about both what i know about la and love about la but then also go with the stark contrast of her being on this in this detox camp that's on a farm and Parking sounds really fun. Yeah. <laughs> Those days of the smaller town feel. So I've enjoyed that one a lot. Yeah, I gotta say your your stories are all a interesting mix of like pop culture and like um traditional uh I guess uh genres and tropes. It's has writing always been your thing? Like no how was your journey to becoming like a published writer? Well, right after college, I knew that. I needed, well, first of all, my parents really wanted me to have a job with health insurance. So that was <laughs> one thing that I knew I had to do. But on the, as a hobby, um, I knew I had always wanted to be a humor writer or a comedic writer, but I didn't know what that meant. Uh, so the first thing I did was kind of research, Googling, whatever, uh, to see what my opportunities were. And stand-up comedy was something that I ended up doing for a number of years uh, and had had some success in that industry. But after about 10 years of performing, I realized this wasn't what I was supposed to do. This wasn't what I had planned. Um, and then had to do a really hard look at um, what I actually wanted to do. So I took a lot of writing classes at that point and ended up um, writing various things before I ended up doing novel writing. But I tried a little bit of screenwriting. I tried essay writing memoirs, and then finally ended up uh, in this uh, mentorship program called Pitch Wars. Um, and basically, you submit a manuscript to be considered for mentorship. And when I was selected for that, that's when uh, we completely overhauled my manuscript. And then I realized, uh, with their help, that I could actually be um, an author of fiction. And I really took to that. And since then, I've been having a great time coming up with these absurd stories that <laughs> hopefully, again, as you said, touch pop culture. They're a little bit nerdy. Um, and I just am enjoying writing them. And I think that's also very important is to enjoy the work you're producing and keep its integrity. Especially when it comes to novel writing, because it, it is such a marathon. And if you don't enjoy what you're writing 
then yes. it's it's painful and then you and then you wonder like why why you're doing it in the first place <laughs> so right. it's good that you enjoyed uh writing uh writing your novels um so you had two books that released this year the perfect escape which came out in april and low that first sight which came out last week uh we're recording on august 26 everyone and um you know, one is YA and the other is adult romance. So did you write both of them at the same time? Or um, did you work on one and then you started the other? Like, um, like did you start on Perfect Escape first? So the order has been interesting because the way they were released is different than how the order that I wrote them. Um, I wrote... I wrote Loathe at First Sight. That's actually the second manuscript that I completed. Um, and we had tried to shop that around and it got so close to being acquired. Um, but various things came up, whether it was um, that the editors didn't know how to market a gaming book to, um, you know, this isn't something that is because at the time it was more of a workplace comedy and it didn't really fall in any category that they um, had already done before and there weren't you know it was just hard for them to place it so we shelved that one and then it was it wasn't until a few months later that I realized that I wanted to change it to a rom-com and I'd watched had been to watched a lot of movies in that time frame uh and was watching Clueless, Legally Blonde, these you know these late 90s early 2000s types of type of rom-coms that have a huge coming of age element as well as a romance and i realized that my book really could be like one of these books and it actually could have a you know a, a bigger higher stakes because of that so i ended up writing it so that it was a little bit more lighthearted and ended up uh with more less of the workplace drama and more of the comedy be, uh, with her relationships around her. And we, while I was writing that one or revising that one, I had actually finished the perfect escape. So that one went, uh, you know, on the market and was being shopped around that got picked up within a month as far as getting an offer. And then when we put this next one uh, out on submission, uh, low that first sight, it got picked up pretty quickly too around the same time. So it seems like, um, wow, the, you know, all this is happening at the same time. But actually, low that first sight's first finished completed manuscript was two years before uh, Perfect Escape. It's just that the timing is so strange in publishing sometimes that it does it does look like all of a sudden all these things happen, but it was actually a very slow journey to get to <laughs> publication um, at the start. You mean you're not a writing that. superwoman who wrote two books in one year? <laughs> Although that is something I'm trying to do now, which uh, <laughs> is turns out to be very hard. So uh, especially in a pandemic, but I am attempting to do two drafts this year and uh, I f finished one of them. So one wow. is in line edits and that's the young adult one, the detox one. The next book is uh, due in a few months. And that one uh, is the adult rom-com that I'm writing now. Cool. Well, speaking of your newest book, uh, can you give our readers a sense of what Loathe at First Sight is about? Sure. Loathe at First Sight is a workplace romantic comedy set in the male-dominated video game industry. 
And it follows Melody Ju. She's a Korean-American video game producer, and she's tasked with releasing a controversial video game, all while being antagonized by everyone around her, especially the new NBA intern who happens to be the CEO's nephew. <laughs> so I know you probably wrote this a few years ago, but it seems really timely that it comes out now, especially in the midst of so much reckoning in the video games industry. Um, I know recently like Ubisoft's queer director did step down for exactly the stuff that you cover in your book. Is that from research or is that from just understanding the world as, as a woman in the male dominated industry? It's, it's a little of both. The, I had done a ton of research around the video game industry um, about four years ago. I have this thing where uh, when I really think something is interesting, I tend to, you know, dive deep into whatever topic that is. And I wanted to write about the video game industry at first because I thought it would be, it, first of all, not, not that many people have written about it in contemporary fiction, but um, I also thought it would be kind of a fun work environment <laughs> you know because again a lot of my friends had gone to these big conventions and come back with swag and all these things and I was thinking wow that would be a really interesting work environment um and I had worked in tech and I should have known better that you know things aren't always what they seem from um the inside to the outside but I as soon as I started thinking um you know researching this industry and I had talked to people and had one-on-one -on -one interviews that were both male and female in the industry, went to gaming panels. I um, read a lot of books, a lot of articles. And after even just scratching the surface, I knew that this was just not a good, healthy work environment. Uh, there's a lot of aggression, uh, microaggressions, macroaggressions, sexism, racism. Um, the misogynistic game culture is just very. Um, it's it's alarming that not much has changed over the years. Uh, as and uh, Marvin, as you mentioned, that it's right now they're going through reckoning. Um, just I don't know how the timing of the book coming out and the reckoning happening now happened, but it is very timely in that um, there's a lot of women who have come forward and expressed all the things that happened to them. And uh, now things are happening in uh, in that there is being. Uh, there are more investigations happening at companies, people being removed from um, public uh, uh, prominent positions and uh, things seem to be changing. Uh, but I guess we'll know for sure uh, in a few, you know, in a few weeks to months, um, whether any of this is actually making a difference. Yeah, actually, um, like ever since the news about Ubisoft, I think it was like two months ago when uh, the news dropped, uh, there there were a lot of tweets and someone compiled all of the uh, like all of the accusations and who got fired or who didn't get fired and uh, what position they had at these companies. Some of them were streamers, some of them were uh, game developers or CEOs. And um, I actually went through them and a lot of them did not get punished for yes. any of their harassments. Um, there were a couple, but um, like you said, not much has changed. I guess the biggest change is that people are actually getting fired. And there mm -hmm. is 
more of a conversation now rather than um I think when Gamergate when Gamergate happened, there was no protection yeah. for a lot of like women developers, but now there is the Me Too movement. There is more of an openness that didn't exist before. Um actually when I'm a gamer and my significant my significant other, he's an indie game developer. So I was pretty well versed in the harassment that happens in the game industry, also the tech industry and just a lot of the talk toxic environment that it is. So I was very surprised when I heard that Love at First Sight was a romance set mm-hmm. in the gaming industry. I, I was just curious as to like how a romance could happen when so much shit happens <laughs> in a gaming workplace. So um was it difficult to figure out like all of the romantic elements of the book? Yes, it was because there's two factors that were challenging. One is to make this a comedy so that people would, you know, find it am- amusing and lighthearted enough to read um during, you know, when during the summer um uh, when this came out. Um, and by doing that, I had to keep a balance between the comedy and the seriousness of uh, the topics that I was bringing up, that the workplace environment, um, it being a workplace comedy, uh, it being a misogynistic culture that I didn't take away from that uh, just for the sake of humor. So I had to really think hard about how to make sure that that integrity was still there but bringing humor to uh, Melody's life in a different way. And so uh, with that, I didn't, you see her reactions to some of the absurd, uh, wild things that happen to her in the workplace. Uh, Some of them offensive. Some of them are just, um, you just roll your eyes uh, because they're just horrifying. But, um, you know, comic relief through her parents and through her um, coworker romance uh, was, was important to make sure that I got that right. The, the other thing is, is that because at the company, the there was a huge emphasis, uh, whether it was perceived or with her office mate making a big deal out of it, of it being forbidden to, you know, you could get fired if you have any sort of romance in the office. Uh, she really had to keep that line drawn, um, even though at times... Uh, when he was working with her as her intern, an MBA intern, who happened to be actually a little older than her, um, she she had to make sure that she didn't cross that line. Um, so toward the end of the story, you see that finally things can happen between them. And then, of course, more things come between them as as things uh, make as things become easier in some ways they are difficult in others. Um, so I think overall it was just to make sure that I got the balance of everything right so that Melody could win at work and in love at the end. What kind of dates do you think Melody and uh, Nolan would have gone on if, you know, they could cross that line? I mean, I know they had a date at (laughs) P.F. Chang's, but that's really not... (laughs) That's not really an ideal date for an Asian woman. <laughs> right. Yes. And she does mention that uh, reasoning for that as well. Um, I know. I, I've always thought that it would be funny to have an Asian person um, 
have a date at PF Chang's and I got the, I got my my dream came true by being able to write about it. <laughs> <laughs> um I I I think cuz they're in Seattle there's a few things that they would do. One would probably be uh you know they would probably go to Pike, Pike Place Market and um there's this place that has these donuts they're homemade and they fry them up and then they dump them in a bag full of powdered sugar and I could see them doing something, you know, something like that, but not sharing the actual donut bag, (laughs) (laughs) having their own, uh, because I think they would have different tastes. Uh, The other thing I think, because he lives in the Green Lake area, would be to him to convince her to go on a walk or a a brief run around the lake, but only once because she's not much of an exercise person. So I think it would be those types of dates, these little uh, small uh, fun dates where you get to spend a lot of time with a person and it's just a little thing you do, but it means a lot more to the person. (laughs) So you mentioned the um, comedy coming from uh, Melody's parents, and I think your portrayal of the passive aggression of um, (laughs) Asian parents was spot on. Um, (laughs) Were they by chance based on your own personal experiences or... (laughs) Yes, to some degree. Um, So one thing I wanted to do in, and you'll see this as I hopefully keep um, producing more books, is that uh, I tried to make sure that not all the characters are the same. So um, in The Perfect Escape, you have a set of parents that are very different than Melody's parents uh, in, in Loathe at First Sight. In Loathe at first sight, though, the parents are very similar to mine. Um, a lot of the things that came out of Melanie's mom's mouth were either things that actually came out of my parents' mouth <laughs> or uh, things that I actually toned down. Um, <laughs> so uh, I, I do appreciate that you see that a lot of the things that the parents say might actually be come out the wrong way, but they all come from a place of... Um, love or wanting um happiness for uh melody but you know again there are some scenes where you're very uncomfortable because uh you know either they say something and she reacts to it um defensively because she you know that's just the funny relationship they have or um, she, you know, there's some scenes where she, they're around other people she knows and she just doesn't know what's going to come out of their mouth. And she's used <laughs> to their, her parents, but other people, she doesn't know how they'll see some of those comments that come out of their mouth. So <laughs> there's a scene where there, she's at a, um, her parents and her love interest parents are at a buffet together and they have, they decide <laughs> to sit together and it's just, that scene was maybe the f- most fun to write because I just kept thinking like, uh, I remember when my parents um, met, you know, my husband's um, family. I remember thinking, "Oh, I don't know what's going to happen. <laughs> <laughs> There's going to be fireworks. There could be, you know, water thrown in people's faces. Who knows?" So, um, I, I think in the end, though, you know, again, because it comes from love, I think by the end you see, you, hopefully, people see the comedy as uh, more of a, you know, a way to get a little bit of uh, levity from the workplace drama, but also see that they actually do have a good relationship by Asian American kid standards. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I think that's the extra layer that I got from it as being Asian American, although I'm Chinese American, not Korean American, but 
you know, my parents do live abroad now, so I only get to talk to them over the phone. And I've definitely had a conversation where um, they would call me at odd, odd hours because I didn't call them earlier. And <laughs> the fact that I could have called them earlier, but I didn't um, led me to this part right now. I really, um, I really related to Melody's plight there, but also understood that it's our own damn fault this is happening. <laughs> yes. There is something funny, too, about at least the, a lot of the Asian parents that I know, where um, when you get into your mid to late 20s, they sort of re-enter the child's life um, to provide parental guidance again. Um, it's because, you know, they graduate, you've graduated from college. Um, again, hopefully you've gotten a job with health insurance, <laughs> <laughs> hopefully paying off your student loans. But um, now's the time where it's time to find a relationship and get married and have kids and enter that next world of, you know, maybe <laughs> buying buying property or whatever. And they decide to re-enter and provide um, their sound parental advice. Right. And it, you know, it, it's, again, it comes from a place of caring, but it really comes off sometimes as meddling. And I think I try <laughs> to keep that um with melody's relationship again lighthearted but i it definitely has happened in my life where uh like i think i was 27 to 28 you know around that age where my parents decided that's the time that they want to uh talk a lot about what they expect from my 30s onward right all, the, all, <laughs> as, all as, oh sorry go go right ahead saying, right all the life advice they should have given us in our teens they decided to um wait till we're yes. adults it's like basically don't date until you're after college and then now you need to find a husband and i was like wait what did what happened <laughs> what did i miss <laughs> and then how, why do i have no social skills around this too so <laughs> like, i missed a big chunk of life uh knowing what to do during that the 20s i just wanted to add uh, a quick thing as a korean american i definitely got war flashbacks when i was reading the scenes with uh, Melody's parents. And I think one aspect of uh, having a Korean immigrant parent is that they cannot go a day without Korean food. And it does not matter if they're in a different country. Uh, they're, they're, there's a short scene where <laughs> Melody finds out very last minute that her parents are going to Italy the next day. And uh, she found out. She finds out later that they barely ate any I Italian food, and I was like, "Oh God, I'm getting like memories of when my family went to Paris, and they like had brought a rice cooker with them." And yes, <laughs> yes that is a yes. thing. Asian parents, some of them bring rice cookers, just smaller ones, just you know, and and the type of food that they are comfortable with in case they don't want to eat the food to where uh of the location that they're going and that's happened to us and it, it's so funny because i remember any my parents after they retired decided to take a lot of cruises and they would always come back um you know talking about the cruise food and then some of the korean food they had at various places <laughs> <laughs> Wait, you literally been at like 20 different countries in the last three cruises or four cruises that you've been on. How did you, you know, how is this what you're talking about? <laughs> and it was always comparing her own cooking to the actual, <laughs> uh, the food that they had in, you know, again, Paris or wherever they went. It was Rome. Uh, she, they thought it was 
very important that they at least try it out so they can compare. And and say that it was inferior. Yes. To to Korean food. <laughs> that that inferior. is important. Yes. Um so <laughs> I found Melody to be such an empowering character. Uh, when she's confronted with a lot of the misogyny and sexual harassment at work, uh, you know, she stands her ground and she speaks up in very creative ways uh, that doesn't get her fired, thankfully. Um, and it's kind of a boldness that we don't really see uh, in many young Asian uh, women in like literature and media. And um, I kind of wish I had her confidence when I was in my late 20s as well. Um, can you talk more about how you develop that strength in Melody? Sure. The The point I wanted to make in this book is that um, in the gaming industry, uh, women have to work so much harder in that game culture um, to uh, to prove themselves. And so... I knew uh, I, I knew Melody as a character would be the type of person who's strong and smart and had trouble asking for help and, and support because she was such a self-starting, independent person. And so throughout the story, she has to learn that, um, at least in this company and in this environment, she will need to figure out how to reach out to people and um, in, in a teamwork environment uh figure out how to release this game with other people's input and other people's help. Uh, by the end of the game, uh, end of the story though, she, she figures this out and is able to do this effortless uh, effortlessly. Um, I wanted to make sure that when I showed Melody's strength, that it wasn't something that came out of nowhere where hopefully if um, women read this book and see how she's gotten through some of these work experiences that are very uh, trying and, and negative that she um, is able to handle herself in a realistic way that won't get you fired. <laughs> um, as you pointed out. And, and uh, I had to really think hard about those scenes because again, um, it, it is important to uh, showcase uh, strength and then provide humor in this book, but I didn't want it to be, something like her all of a sudden waking up with superpowers and is able to suddenly develop this video game and is all of a sudden reads a book and is now a strong coder. Um, Those didn't, I didn't want these sort of easier wins for her, but I did want the triumph she had at work to be small, smaller scale and realistic so that by the end of the book, they kind of all add up and you see that she's really grown a lot and that uh, she's becoming more, finding more strength in knowing that she was able to do um, a lot by herself because she was able to find, um, I recognize that um, finding support and help at work is not a sign of weakness. It's actually a sign of strength. I was so stressed out with a lot of the work obstacles that were thrown her way. Uh, (laughs) I know, I know that this is an enemies to, uh, lovers uh type of story but the true enemy in this book is her boss ian mckenzie who is the worst boss ever (laughs) out of all out of all sexist racist and incompetent bosses out there um did you draw his character from any previous bosses you've had to work with 
Um, <laughs> uh, let's see. How do I answer that question? That Ian McKenzie, I've worked with a lot of these guys that are like Ian McKenzie. It's not necessarily a boss, but it's people who uh, take other people's ideas and uh, write them as and say that they're own their own. Um, it's these smaller things that some men do in the workplace that all kind of, I I took all of the things that bothered me the most about where I've worked and people I've worked with. And then I rolled them up into who Ian McKenzie is. (laughs) So he's like the ultimate worst coworker ever. You know, um, I, I said, I was discussing with somebody that one of the types of things that happened to me in the workplace, and this is in a small example is, you know, I would be, I worked on this one project where I created this giant uh, spreadsheet for um, coming up with product um, attributes and features that needed to be um, produced. And it wasn't even my role. I was a marketing person, but somehow I ended up being asked to do somebody else's job. So I ended up again, doing all this product management stuff for a software company. And uh, it was a Google doc. So I shared it with my sort of immediate teammates. And then the next day I had to go in and, and add some new lines, uh, line items and notice that there were about 15 to 20 people logged in. And then when I scrolled over the little icons, they were very senior people. It was like the CEO, the COO. And I was so confused that I, you know, reached out to my boss and the team. And I said, well, why is everybody in this this document. It's very disturbing. And they were having a meeting without me. (laughs) And one guy had presented the work as his own. So that type of thing that happened in the workplace, again, I wanted to show that that does happen to real people. Um, And funny enough, I've had a lot of women message me or talk to me since the book has been released and let me know that whether they work in advertising or in higher education, that this type of these type of coworkers, um, they've run into them all the time, where they take people's ideas, or they talk over them in meetings, or just take their idea and or in an email and rephrase it slightly and just cut and paste it as their own. That type of stuff seems to be very common. And I wanted to make sure because there aren't that many workplace comedies out there that I got this part right. Um, <clears throat> yeah, men are awful in every <laughs> Sorry, <Marvin>. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's sad to something that's coming to light is this kind of collective, not well hidden secret that this type of stuff actually happens all the time in every single industry. And that's why we're seeing all these, you know, reckonings everywhere, even in in publishing in tech and gaming. Mm-hmm. And it's I think it's important for stories like yours to create that spark to at least show people that they're not, I mean, that's the thing with representation, right? Whether it's, you know, racial or gender or even, you know, workplaces, these experiences are not as uncommon as people think they are. And by seeing these portrayed, I hope that it gives them a little bit of strength to really reflect on their own values and, and lives. Yes. I'm hoping the same. I, I, a lot of the people who have talked to me are from all sorts of backgrounds um, and, you know, different, ethnicities. And it's encouraging to me um, to see that so many people have appreciated Melody and understand uh, why I wrote the book. 
uh, the way I did. And it hopefully will shed light on, um, you know, maybe in a, a different way of uh, what's happening in the gaming industry and hopefully adding to the collective movement of things changing in that uh, environment. So we talked a little bit about how um, there is more of an open conversation in the gaming industry about uh, all the terrible misogyny that happens. And Melody has a squad of supportive and capable women uh, both in the workplace and also in her personal life, like her two best friends, Jane and Candace. And I thought it was really interesting because uh, Jane and Candace are very different and they're going through major life changes. And uh, Melody's coworkers, they are also like very distinct. And I thought you did a really terrific job fleshing out uh, pretty much all of the characters, but particularly the female characters. Um, how did you just how did you decide what types of personalities would mesh well with Melody? That's an interesting question. I haven't ever been asked that. Um, with the female characters, some of it is based on real people I know uh, in the character traits. Um, but I also wanted to show, uh, as you mentioned, the breadth um, in terms of characterization of women professional women. And so uh, coming up with the the easiest person to come up with was um, Jane, in that she was this um, investment banker who, you know, is all about getting deals. And she's pretty much like loves things to be orderly. And in the story, she ends up uh, getting engaged, and she turns into like the ultimate bridezilla. And so I wanted to show a little bit of, um, you know, outside of work, uh, relationship building, uh, for Melody and to kind of buffer her personality. I chose Candace, who is a sweetheart. And I think in any friend group, you have, uh, different personalities and, um, you try to, it's not like everyone is the same. And what I wanted to do was showcase that where uh, Candace has, uh, you know, she's a PR person and she uh, helps Melody find people who can help her out during a really tough um, trolling situation. And she's super resourceful, but she almost doesn't seem like the kind of person who would be able to help her that way. And so I wanted to make sure that I picked two strong women uh, in her corner and then at work, the um, cat and some of the other um, secondary characters, I wanted to make sure that they were also strong and were able to uh, be very different from Melody, but also compatible in that um, they appreciated Melody for who she was and, uh, you know, were supportive instead of the type of sometimes people people portray women as being, you know, cutting and cutthroat. And I didn't want that for this novel, especially because Melody has to go through so much at work anyway. Yeah. I, I also liked how, um, you know, around your late 20s, like your friends start to get married and some some people start families. And I really like that contrast of like, oh, my friends are going through these adult phases, whereas like, it feels like I'm missing a step here. So I was really grateful 
uh, <laughs> for for that contrast. Uh, was was the book always called Loathe at First Sight? Because um, obviously readers can immediately sense the enemies to lovers trope. The original original title back when it was a darker workplace drama dramedy. Uh, it was originally, so I think we put it on submission as against the odds, uh, which definitely has a different feel than Loathe at First Sight. And I, once I wrote, uh, and established Nolan as her love interest, because the original version had her in a different life stage, um, I wanted to make sure that I picked, or we all agreed on a title that where uh, sure, low that first sight definitely um, is addressing the key relationship in the story. In that she doesn't, she really does does not like Nolan at the beginning. <laughs> um, but I also wanted to give a nod to the fact that there's all these trolls and jerks at work that respond to her game and to her so negatively, and they second guess her and underestimate her um, the entire time that she's you know working on this game and so having a title that could address both was uh worked out really well in in that sense so yeah so i think it started off as more of a um title that addressed the workplace only and then turned into a kind of a title that could work both on the romance front but also um address the antagonists all around her uh, so I have I have one last question for you, and it's a very like light question. Are you a gamer? Like, what games do you play if if you are a gamer? I was more of a gamer about ten years ago when I had a lot more free time, pre children <laughs> and pre everything. Um, I ended up back then. I have a very addictive personality in that once I start something, I kind of have to finish it, uh, <laughs> or it just like to me, I don't like leaving things open. So the I've actually finished a few games uh, that where I knew I finished it and was disappointed because the credits would roll <laughs> and then it would start me back at the beginning. Um, so I finished Katamari Damacy. It's this game where it's like this, I don't even know how to describe it, but it's this sticky ball that rolls around and you use the controllers to roll it, in, you know, in any direction. And it picks up things that, and you start off in a room with like thumbtacks and, you know, uh, erasers and small things around like a, a room dropped on the floor. And then by the last, uh, the last stage of the last level, you're rolling up an entire city. And so you're like, your your ball is picking up like buildings and ships and vessels and trains and whatever, and ends up like the entire planet. And so when I did that and it finished and the credits rolled, I was like, Oh geez, I, now I know I did this an entire weekend. I need to not be this person. <laughs> so I've had to really think hard about like not uh, playing as many games because I know that that's how I am. So since then, though, you know, fast forward to current day, I've been mostly playing on the Switch. And the games I've been most, I guess, uh, right now uh, playing the most has been um, Ring Fit Adventure. Oh, same here. Yeah, because I think it's it serves a couple purposes. One is like I, I'm not uh, doing the binging because it's like 
it wears you out. <laughs> so I'm just like, oh, to continue playing, I have to do exercise. No, thank you. <laughs> um, but also it's, um, you know, it's like a good way to be indoors and still moving around, uh, especially in this time. So it's worked out really well for what I need it for. And it's fun to play, a lot of fun. And my daughter plays it too. The other thing that I play with her is arms. I don't know if you guys know that game. Oh, yeah. Yeah, the punching yeah. game, the stretchy arm punching game. <laughs> and I'm not particularly good at it, but I think because at the end when I'm about to die, I just start mashing buttons and sometimes wins. My daughter just is driven crazy and she's like, you don't have any strategy. You don't know what you're doing. I was like, I know, <laughs> I know. But sometimes you just have to try uh, Hail Mary at the end. And so that's been fun. Those two games I've been playing a lot with her and it's uh, worked out well. On my phone, though, I've also tried not uh, to take off a lot of um, games because I was <laughs> playing, you know, all the ones that you, uh, what is it, Pokemon Go. I have a large number of Pokemon in my Pokedex. Um, <laughs> and then uh, Donut Country was also this one that I was addicted to for a long time. Where Oh, my God, it's so relaxing, <laughs> it is. isn't it? <laughs> yes. Things just falling to a giant hole. It's just uh, in the hole getting bigger. And yeah, it's just really relaxing and it's just it's easy to to kind of fall into that and not really stress out about um like any time pressure you're just kind of trying stuff out and see what fits in the hole (laughs) and there you go um (laughs) and my daughter likes that one too so i have that on my phone but that's the one only thing i have on my phone right now it's funny how you mentioned uh katamari damasi because um i've my partner and I have joked to our family that um, actually it's not really a joke. We kind of want to do it. But if we get married, uh, we want our first dance song to be uh, one of the songs oh, from yeah. Katamari. <laughs> I love that soundtrack. I One of my friends. It's so good. Yes, he came and he visited it again during this time where I was obsessed with it. And we, I got him addicted to it as well. And then he told me he bought the soundtrack. And I was like, you can buy the soundtrack. And so then I bought the soundtrack. So yes, it's really, it's really great. I love it. And that would be awesome. I would love to, <laughs> I would love to see somebody have a first dance to any of the the music from Katamari. Uh, so we're at, we're at the end. Marvin, do you have anything uh, you want to add? Uh, no, I mean, thank you so much for joining us and talking about your book and your, your, your journey. Um, if people want to find out more about you and your writing, where can they go? Sure. I'm on Instagram and Twitter at, um, at Suzanne Park, S-U-Z-A-N-N-E-P-A-R-K. On Facebook, I'm Suzanne Park Comedy. And I think, yeah, I think it's Suzanne Park Comedy. And my website is SuzannePark.com. Great. And um, Suzanne's books are... Know That First Sight and The Perfect Escape, both out now at booksellers everywhere. So please check them out. Um, Suzanne, thank you so much for talking with us. It was a lot of fun. Thank you. This was so much fun. I really (laughs) had a good time. And that was Suzanne Park, the author of Loathe at First Sight and The Perfect Escape. Um, Rira, that was a lot of fun. I'm really glad um, we were able to chat with her. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, I, I think we... Like, our talk just went everywhere. <laughs> um, that's that's how it is when you're having uh, a lot of fun um, in, in interviews. You, 
kind of gab away. So I'm really glad that uh, we had Suzanne on the podcast and I hope you guys enjoyed our conversation as well as our very nerdy moments in this podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, thank you so much to Suzanne for joining us. A quick reminder that this month's book symbol, the book club pick uh, for August 2020 is The Empress of Salt and Fortune by Niveau. We'll be releasing our discussion of that book uh, next week. Um, So please check that out if you are reading along with us. And with that, that'll also do it for this episode of Books and Boba. Thank you so much for listening. Uh, A quick request, if you did enjoy this episode and our podcast, to please give us a rating review on iTunes or wherever you can rate our podcast. Um, It's uh, we don't ask that often, but we still very much appreciate any support you all can give us. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And for those of you who have already finished our August book club pick, our September book club pick is Minor Feelings and Asian American Reckoning by Kathy Park Palm. Yeah, it's been a while since we read a one of these um, I guess essay collections, right? Yeah, it, it's been a while since we've read a, a nonfiction title. I mean, um, Maxine Hong's book was a memoir, but yeah, I guess that but it was like counts. Yeah, I guess that technically counts, <laughs> but it feels it feels like we haven't read a nonfiction title in a really long time. Yeah, I've heard a lot about this book, so I'm looking forward to reading it. Um, and yeah, looking forward to discussing it with all of you. So, um, thanks so much for listening to Books and Boba. Uh, we'll see you next time. Bye, everyone. Bye. Thanks for listening to Books and Boba. This podcast was hosted by Marvin Yue and Ri Rayu and edited and produced by Marvin Yue. Follow the book club on Twitter and Instagram by going to at Books and Boba and engage with us on Goodreads on our Goodreads group. You can also check out past episodes of the podcast by going to booksandboba.com and by subscribing to us on your favorite podcast app. Books and Boba is a proud member of the Potluck Podcast Collective, a collective of Asian American hosted podcasts featuring unique voices and stories from the Asian diaspora. Learn more about The Collective and check out our fellow Potluck shows by visiting the website podcastpotluck.com. Thanks for listening. Hey, Brian. Did you go to Saturday school as a kid? I sure did. Did you? Totally. Well, at our podcast, Saturday School, we don't teach a language, but we pass along the culture that we do know. And that's Asian American pop culture. Ada is a journalist, and I'm a professor and film festival programmer. We've watched a lot of great Asian American movies, and we want you to watch them too. Come listen to us as we look back at the pioneering films that have led us to today. 